All right. We're talking about overcoming escapism part two, the life and death battle for your mind. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. We really need the Holy Spirit here. Father in heaven, we just know we need you so much. I pray that you will come and speak to every single heart, that you will bring those who need to hear this, that you will bless those who listen, whether they're here or whether they listen online. Give each one of us, Lord, a special sense of your spirit and an understanding of your word and your will for our lives, that we may be able to break free from the debilitating influence of the devil on our minds, and that we may be in heaven because we've applied these principles to our lives. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Now, I want to just recap a little bit for those who weren't here in the first hour. We're talking about escapism and why it's such a big deal. And the bottom line is, escapism is a form of avoiding the conflicts and the problems of life by going to something instead of to God. Instead of casting all our cares on Him, we try to pretend our cares aren't there and find something to make us feel better temporarily. It's a painkiller with deadly results on the mind. Why is escapism such a big deal? Largely because God is relational. His law is relational. Love God first, love your neighbor as yourself, right? And escapism cuts right to the heart of our relationships. How do relationships grow? Two things. What are they? Quality time of communication. And what does escapism steal? Quality time of communication. It makes our communication shallow. It leads us to feel like there must be something more interesting and important than talking through things with this person, working through conflicts, doing the hard work of relationships. Instead, when I'm going to be an escapist, I already assume this relationship is not worth working on unless it makes me feel good. If my escape makes me feel better than working through things with God or with others, why would I turn to God and others and build those relationships biblically? Instead, I'm going to pursue happiness. I'm going to pursue pleasure, something that makes me feel good. God's way is always the happiest. I don't want to say you can be happy or you can follow God. The two are together. God gives us the happiest way, but it doesn't always feel the happiest. It's not the most pleasurable way sometimes. The pathway to true pleasure, true happiness, is often through working through our pain. God's perspective on wasting our time in escapism is very serious. God grants men the gift of time for the purpose of promoting his glory. When this time is used in selfish pleasure, the hours thus spent are lost for all eternity. That's Counsels to Parents, Teachers, and Students, page 354. And the Review and Herald, June 15 of 1886, says moments are more precious than what? Gold. We have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Our time, our talents belong to him. Wouldn't it be the saddest thing possible for you to miss out on all of eternity with Christ, who paid for you with his blood because World of Warcraft or movies or the Internet was more pleasurable at that particular moment? You didn't feel like working hard to have a relationship with God, and so you didn't bother. Escapism robs us of life's greatest pleasures anyway. It's a debilitating influence that makes us feel like, oh, I can't do it. You know, the person who is at the gym going, I can't pick up this 200-pound weight, so forget it. I'm just going to go home and binge on ice cream, is doing the same thing as the escapist who says, I know I need time with God. 
I know I need to pray. I know I need to study the Bible. But I just don't feel close to God right now. So I'm going to call somebody. Or I'm going to go open the refrigerator. We do the same thing, but we do it inch by inch. And so like the frog in the pot of water that slowly boils, we don't realize how devastating this influence is upon our spiritual lives until it's just sapped us of all our spiritual energy. And we think it's normal to live prayerless, godless lives where we study the Bible by simply reading a, a few verses or a chapter and going, Lord, please help me to have a nice day. Help me to do well on this test. Be with Grandma. Amen. And we think that's actually a prayer life. It's not. If I had a relationship with my husband in which every morning I said, have a nice day, honey. Love you lots. Bye. And I greeted him in the evening and said, here's supper. I hope you had a good day. And that was the extent of our communication. Would we have a relationship? Would we have a marriage? No, marriage takes work. It takes communication, quality time. And a relationship with God works on exactly the same principles as a relationship with other human beings. When you're struggling in your relationship with God, you feel far from Him, you don't know how to connect, think, what would I do if this were a person I were romantically interested in and I was trying to build a relationship with them? How would I handle that? How would I build a relationship? I would try to get to know them right. They wrote me a note or a letter, I would study it. I would write back. Communication is key. And it takes work. When you don't actually know God, you know about Him, you have to really work to connect deeply with him, but it's well worth the work. Now, I know some people have in the back of their minds now this feeling like, so she's saying I can never have a good time. I can never have fun again. Every moment has to be enslaved in spiritual exercise, right? I know the devil told me that when I started um, deciding I wanted to follow Christ, and people would say things like, no jesting or joking is acceptable. No, you cannot. And I was just like, oh my goodness, following God, I might make it to heaven, but I'm going to have to dress in black and be sober down here all my life. It was a very scary thought to me. I decided to follow Christ, but then I discovered that leaving behind some of the shallow, empty fun exchanged it for true joy, true peace, the excitement of knowing God and knowing he's doing something purposeful with my life that I'm preparing for eternity and I'm going to reap benefits for eternity in the people that I've brought with me to heaven. There's nothing more exciting than the Christian life. But it's not all entertainment. It's recreation that God wants us to have. Now, I really liked some of the balanced things that Ellen White's written about this topic. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 1, page 514 says, I was shown that Sabbath keepers as a people labored too hard without allowing themselves change or periods of rest. Now, that may have been true more in the 1800s than now, but it's certainly true for some of us, right? And students in college can find themselves totally laboring too hard on stuff, slaving away on assignments and things you have to do until you're just drained and then you're driven to escape. Recreation is needful to those who are engaged in physical labor, and it is still more essential for those whose labor is principally mental. It is not essential to our salvation, nor for the glory of God, to keep the mind laboring constantly and excessively, even upon religious themes. See, God is not demanding you're going to have to live a dull life and every spare minute is going to be studying the Bible. He wants you to have recreation. He wants you to be able to meditate on spiritual things in joyful ways. God's way is always best. 
In Testimonies for the Church, Volume 2, page 586, this is recorded. Ellen White actually was speaking at a picnic by the lake when she said this. She said, We can and should conduct our recreations in such a manner that we shall be fitted for the more successful discharge of the duties devolving upon us, and that our influence shall be more beneficial upon those with whom we associate. Um, in the context, she was even talking about, this is a great way for us to spend time. Go have a picnic beside the lake. Enjoy ourselves together. Have genuine fellowship. Build our relationships with one another. So she, what she's talking about is there's nothing wrong with having times for fellowship and community and recreation. And, and it's very important and necessary for us. When we don't do that, we drive ourselves to escapism. The Adventist Tome, page 493, says, There are persons with a diseased imagination to whom religion is a tyrant, ruling them as with a rod of iron. Such are constantly mourning over their depravity and groaning over supposed evil. Love does not exist in their hearts. A frown is ever upon their countenances. They are chilled by the innocent laugh from the youth or from anyone. They consider all recreation or amusement a sin and think that the mind must be constantly wrought up to just such a stern, severe pitch. This is one extreme. Does that sound like the life you want? Praise God, it's not the life he wants for you. Um, well, you, if you read it in the context, you'll see more. Here's the, the part that comes right after it, Adventist Home, page 493. Others think that the mind must be ever on the stretch to invent new amusements and diversions in order to gain health. And I think this is much more a problem now than it ever was in the 1800s. They learn to depend on excitement and are uneasy without it. Such are not true Christians, not followers of Christ. That's pretty serious, right? They go to another extreme. The true principles of Christianity open before all a source of happiness, the height and depth, the length and breadth of which are immeasurable. Isn't that beautiful? God wants us to have a source of happiness, the height and depth and length and breadth of which are immeasurable. I remember talking with a girl who told me she, she had not been sure what to do with her summer, and I persuaded her to go canvassing for the summer. She came and talked to me afterward, and her face was just lighted up. I'd never seen her like this. And she said, you know, I used to just spend all my time trying to find something fun to do. But now that I've tasted real joy, fun is just not attractive anymore. That's what God wants for us, to fill us with such tremendous joy, such depth in our relationship with Him and with others, that we aren't continually looking for something to excite us, something to distract us from the pain and misery and depression of life. I'm going to share with you five keys to escape from escapism. Number one, temperance. Number two, reflection. Number three, discipline. Number four, prayer and communion with God. And number five, sharpening your sword of the spirit. So let's talk about the first one, temperance. How does temperance make a big difference in your escapism? Have you ever noticed when you can't manage to get yourself to bed at a decent hour, when you're like, I'm just going to check my phone for a few minutes. Has anybody ever noticed how that works out? Or is it only me? You need temperance. In other words, push yourself to do balanced things in your life. I, I plug my phone in far away from my bed. That way I'm not tempted. Then 9 o'clock comes. It's time to go to sleep. 
Sometimes I may get up and go and be on my phone. I see a text message come in. My phone lights up over there. I go over there and see it, but it's worth it. It's worth it to have it somewhere else because when I wake up in the morning, what's the overwhelming urge? What did everybody say to me last night while I was asleep? <gasps> the people in Australia and Africa, they were awake. What did they think of me during that time? I don't know why it is. But we all feel the need to go scroll through all those advertisements first thing in the morning. And then what happens to my devotional time? I'll get to that as soon as I answer this person who said something to me on Facebook. And an hour later, I'm like, oh, man, i got to get breakfast. Right? Just don't do it. I, I speak from the perspective of a person who can easily become escapist. Temperance. Temperance is so important. Go to sleep early. Get your exercise. Exercise is so helpful. Get that energy out, especially if you're doing mental labor. You need physical exercise. Keep your brain going. When I'm studying, I sometimes have to just take my book over to the gym and sit on an exercise bike and read while my legs are going because then the brain keeps having blood flowing through it. Maybe I'm escapist and, you know, because of all those years of debilitating novel reading, now I just have to, you know, keep the jello working. I don't know what it is. But somehow, exercise helps so much to help me stay focused. Number three, avoid unhealthy food and drink. I'm not even going into the drugs and alcohol and smoking and all that. You know to avoid those. But so often, we'll just think, you know, gorging on some sugar isn't going to be that bad. But then one step leads to another. If I just start out eating a few Pringles, do I just eat a few Pringles? When you know there's something that you cannot just eat a few of. Maybe you just need to cut it out altogether. I don't know. Maybe just for a time. But whatever it is, avoid those things that you know start you downward, start you spiraling. If you know going to YouTube is going to end up badly, just don't even go there. It's going to be helpful. Fourth, under temperance, take time for recreation. Not just exercise but actually recreation because when you aren't getting out there and spending time, you know, sitting by a creek writing poetry or whatever it is that you do that's recreational for you, if you don't do that, you will tend to come to 9 or 10 or 11 at night and go, I just, I just need to get away. What's in the refrigerator? You know, don't do it. Take time for recreation and invest in quality relationships you will be so much better off in your temperance habits if you can invest before you hit a crisis in quality relationships. Then when you're going through a difficult time, you don't just crash and go for the ice cream. You call your friend and say, can we pray together? I really need somebody to pray with me. Or can we go for a walk together? I'm starting to feel really tempted to just go online and do things I know I shouldn't do. Please help me. You'll need those quality relationships later on in your life. And the time to invest in them is not just when you're in a crisis. You don't want to be the person that every time somebody sees a text message from you come in, they go, oh, no, it's him again. He's probably in the depths of despair. <laughs> but you know you need to have temperance. These are the things you should be doing consistently every day to set yourself in a cycle of healthiness so that when you start wobbling, you know what you're doing, and you can get back on track. You know how it feels when you're under intense pressure, and you've got to get this thing turned in by this time, and you've got to get this done. And when you finally get past it, and then you have this, I just want to relax. I just want to. You know that, that 
afterward feeling. You want to be ready for that by not pushing yourself so hard. When you can be temperate, get to bed early, get up early, set yourself a schedule, that will help so much with not sending you right over the edge into compulsive binge movie watching or whatever it is later on when you've finished something. How many of you have ever wasted your whole spring break watching stuff? You know, be honest, there you go. There are some honest, courageous people here. I remember talking to a guy who, as soon as spring break hit, he had mountains of schoolwork to do. He had a job. So you know what he did? He watched movies all night, every night, all the way through spring break. And at the end of spring break, he came back into school just emotionally and physically debilitated, exhausted, coming down with something, and depressed because he had planned, of course, to do an incredible amount of work over spring break, and he ended up getting nothing done and coming out of spring break entertained, but certainly not having engaged in any kind of recreation. It was terrible. You don't want that. So in order to not hit that, try to be temperate beforehand. During your school year, keep yourself going. If you have to take less classes or take a, a lighter workload, maybe that's something to consider. Because when you push yourself, you know, Physically, if I were picking up huge loads and carrying them every day and damaging my spine, I would know I'm going to pay for this later on. But somehow we get the idea that emotionally and mentally we can take on massive amounts and it'll be okay. Then we start snapping at people who matter to us. We start being unable to sleep. We start doing things compulsively we know we shouldn't do. And part of the problem is that we weren't temperate. We expected ourselves to do more than the Lord called us to do. Okay, so temperance is number one. Number two is reflection. Ask yourself questions like these. These are some of the tough questions that escapists want to avoid at all costs. What am I fleeing from? In what situations do I typically engage in escapist behavior? Nobody wants to identify those because when you identify them to yourself, that's virtually admitting this needs to stop. And we don't want to do that, right? Number three, is there a specific feeling or mood that triggers the urge to escape? Is it when I sense that people are not thinking highly enough of me that I start wanting to fantasize? Is it when I start focusing on that nobody loves me? Look at all these other girls and their boyfriends making out on the steps of the dorm. Nobody loves me like that. Then you can expect, if you start thinking unbiblically, you're going to start engaging in unbiblical behaviors before too long. What is it that I enjoy about my fantasy? And what do I feel as I come down after a fix? You may want to get a journal and write out some of these things. Or sit down at your computer and write your list. Just don't switch over to the internet quickly as you're doing that. <laughs> yes? Yes, there's recreation versus recreation. And my husband has a whole seminar on that too, I believe. But yes, recreation is what recreation is supposed to be about, right? Reflection time is something that will be so helpful to you. I find so many people who have gone through painful situations in their childhoods, or maybe have gone through a breakup recently, have gone through something intense, they're driven compulsively to escapist behaviors, to addictions. But it's because there's so much pain looming. 
it's just coming down the mountain toward them and they don't want to look at it. And so they turn their backs and pretend like it's not coming down the mountain toward them. This is not an effective way of coping, is it? Because sooner or later it's going to hit and it's only going to be worse because we engaged in escapist behaviors. The best thing to do is to cope by being honest, being introspective. You know, the Bible says, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. That's not just about scripture memorization. That's actually about speaking the truth within our hearts. He that speaketh the truth in his heart will be saved. Sometimes I need to speak the truth in my heart about the things that I don't want to face. Facing the fact that I really shouldn't be with this person that I keep wishing I could be with. Or facing the fact that I have a problem with food. Something like that. If we can face it, it feels terrible at the moment, but it actually is the beginning of victory. You know, I often tell people when I'm in counseling with them, you have three circles in your life. If the inner circle is called bad, you'll live in bad until you're so miserable you go, I can't live in bad anymore. I've got to get out of bad. And so you start making progress out of bad. And you know what you hit? You hit the second circle, these concentric circles, you know. When you get out of bad, you hit the second circle, and the second circle is called worse. <laughs> and when you hit worse, you go, oh, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. And you go back to bad escapist behavior where you know this isn't the way I should be coping but I just can't face out there you go back and forth between those I can't live like this anymore I have to get out and you go into worse and then worse is so bad you go back to bad many people spend their whole lives going from bad to worse and back to bad and they never realize if you go through worse you'll get to the third circle out there And you know what that third circle is called better and better and better and better because the path of the justice is a shining light that shines more and more unto the perfect day. If I have an infected wound here on my arm, because emotional and physical um, pain and healing work on the same principles as spiritual pain and healing, you know, physical, emotional, spiritual, they're all the same. <clears throat> an infection is like sin in the mind. If I have an infected wound, it's full of pus, but it's healed over on the outside and it looks terrible, but it's all contained there. When I go to the doctor and say, this wound on my arm is just killing me. I can't touch this arm. And anytime anybody comes close to it, I go, ah, stay away from my arm. He says, you know what it needs? I just need to lance it. He grabs his little sharp scalpel and moves toward my arm. What am I going to do? Oh, no, 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 no. Let's, let's look for options. Let's talk about this, right? Because we don't want to lance that wound. That sounds really, really painful. It sounds miserable. You might squeeze it. I've been doing everything I can to get nobody to touch my arm. And now you want to do the very thing that's going to hurt the most. But the doctor knows the only way that that arm is ever going to get better is if we get the garbage out, right? Because my immune system has been working hard to increase the pressure right there in that infected wound to get it to where this stuff will all come out to the surface and it'll come out instead of being staying there and causing systemic poisoning, right? God wants to get the pain and the garbage and the sinful ways of relating to situations out of your life. He wants to bring them to the surface so you can get rid of them. And the way he does that is by causing them to hurt. So much so that you are like, okay, I can't ignore this anymore. I've got to go to a doctor. I've got to get something out of this. I've got to squeeze it. I've got to poke it. I've got to get the garbage out because I can't live like this anymore. Escapism is the painkiller that makes you go, if I just take a painkiller, I don't actually have to do anything about my arm. I'm not that worried about it. I feel fine again. But 
When the painkiller wears off, the infection is worse, and you don't want to experience the effects of losing your arm, losing your life for eternity because you use the painkillers of escapism. So reflection is crucial. Introspection, prayerful asking the Lord, what is it? Thou God seest me, laying your life before him, asking him to reveal to you what's going on in your heart. Sometimes that includes going to a counselor, to a mentor, a parent, a trusted friend who you know is connected with the Lord and who knows you well and saying, what do you see in me that you think God might want to change? Because often our blind spots are the very things that are glaringly obvious to those around us who love us. And those people can help us understand how to lance the wound, how to let out the garbage so that Christ can heal us. He can put his antiseptic balm into our wounds and turn them into scars. Number three, we need discipline. There is just no easy way to escape from escapism. It is hard work, and the longer you've escaped, the more pain you have to escape from, the deeper your habits, the harder it's going to be to be disciplined. But the time to start is now, and the way to start is inch by inch. You can't lift the 100-pound weight, that's okay. Lift the 10-pound weight, or the 5-pound weight, or the 2-pound weight, because the key is turning around and saying, I'm going to start. It's not about where you are on that path to heaven. It's about which direction you're facing, which direction you're stepping. God can take you anywhere you are, no matter how far you are from him. You turn your face toward him, he's right there beside you saying, let's start. Let's start right now. Take one step toward me, I'm going to be here. Turn your face toward me, and I will start working in within you for my glory. Some ways that you can be disciplined, I know for me practically, you know, I'm a homeschooling mom with three children. They're wonderful. I love this stage of my life. It's a blast, but sometimes I just want to tear my hair out or theirs. <laughs> and I'm not telling which one is the bigger urge. When those times happen, my house is a mess, my floors all have Cheerios on them, and everywhere I walk, I'm just, ah, I can't do this anymore. And all my, cover my countertops are sticky, and all my dishes are dirty, and the children are supposed to be cleaning these things up. But it's so much more work for me to get the children to do it than to just do it myself. You know what I mean? I don't feel like facing all those things. And those will be the times that I suddenly have the urge to go answer emails. And while I'm answering the emails, I'll just check Facebook. And then an hour later, I'm still just checking to see what's happening there, you know, because I'm scrolling down and somebody said something that was kind of funny. And maybe I should just repost that. You know what I mean? We don't have a television at my house for good reason, because I know my husband and I are like, you know, we would escape too easily. Our children would escape too easily. So we don't go there. But that doesn't mean that all the temptations to escapism are gone, because the devil knows all he has to have is your mind. You can just be fantasizing about stuff, and he's got you. There will always be an avenue for the devil to reach your mind, and there will always be a victory available if you're willing to give yourself to Christ. One of the things that helps me sometimes when my house is a mess and I know I need to clean it up is I'll set a timer, five or ten minutes. I often tell people who are struggling with depression to do this too. If you can't clean your kitchen, if you can't face your floors, just set a timer for five minutes and do that. You can clean for five minutes. And you know what you'll find after you've cleaned for five minutes? You may be so energized that you can do five minutes more and 10 minutes more. Now you don't want to start getting compulsive and going, all right, I'm going to clean the entire house now. Every single, I'm going to clean every drawer. No, this is not helpful. <laughs> 
But what you do need to do is give yourself to Christ. Now, there are, there's a, a website out there. What's it called? Flylady.net. Anybody ever heard of Flylady? Fly stands for finally loving yourself. And she's a compulsive lady who basically set up a system in which she could help get rid of the entire disaster that was her life and her house. So she has this, she'll send you lots of emails. You sign up for the email list and you'll get like 20 emails a day that tell you things like have a 17 fling boogie or something like that where you find 17 things in your house and put them in a bag to get rid of. Or shine your sink or sweep your floor, or find all the shoes in the house and put them away, whatever. She'll give you little tasks to do, manageable tasks. That's not an evil system. It can be very helpful. My problem is with the concept behind it, finally loving yourself. When in the Bible are we told that loving ourselves is going to solve anything? When does sin solve sin? My problem is that I want to fix my problems myself. I don't want to turn to a Christ who tells me I'm going to need him every hour and every day of my life. I'd like to be able to handle everything myself, actually. Thank you very much. But God says, no, you are going to need me, and I will love you so much that when you dwell in my love, you believe in my love, it will transform your approach to everything in life. Then you can clean because I already love you, not feel like you're finally loved because you cleaned. See what I mean? So there are, there are a lot of philosophies out there about discipline. I don't want to dwell too much on them. It is important for you to start. Start somewhere, start little, and don't set unrealistic expectations for yourself. But discipline is going to be crucial. As I mentioned earlier, I keep my phone away from my bed. Keep your computer away from your bed. Whatever it is, your iPad, I don't know, your technology or the things that tempt you. You know, if it's novels or music or movies or whatever it is that you're struggling with, keep those things away from where they're going to be in the most tempting areas of your life. And you know, typically, you're going to be weak late at night when you're tired out or when you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, I can't sleep. Let me just go check whatever. Set up an accountability system. You need somebody who can be there for you. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your best friends. Maybe it's your counselor, whoever it is, somebody who can hold you accountable and say, how are you doing in that area? Okay, what are you going to change then? You know, have an accountability system of some kind where you can ask the Lord to help you and have other people help you. You know, we're wounded in relationships. We're healed in them too. We, we have to apply both parts of the law of God in order to really have well-rounded lives. In other words, to love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength is not going to be enough. I'm still going to be a lawbreaker unless I love my neighbor as myself. And God demonstrated this to Adam, didn't he? He was in the Garden of Eden. Everything was beautiful. He was in a perfect place, and he had perfect communion with God. And God set him up there and said, how do you feel, Adam? And Adam's like, you know, this is great, but there's something missing. Where's the other one for me? God has designed us to live in deep relationships with other people, and it's not sinful for us to want that. We just have to have a relationship with God first. And yes, Adam was looking for a helpmeet, a wife, but Adam didn't have anybody else besides God. We do have other people, so if you don't have a marriage partner, don't think, someday, someday I will be loved. No, you are surrounded with relationships, and you have to invest in quality relationships in order to build a network for yourself. 
All right. Um, also, set goals for yourself in discipline. Not unrealistic goals. Be sure you set goals that are reachable. But Ellen White talks about how you know, when a person's struggling to be disciplined, just set reasonable time limits and say, I'm going to finish this by this time. And then spend all your energies doing that. And you'll find you can accomplish so much more than you thought you could in a short period of time if you don't just say, well, I think I'll just stop and do this quickly. Set goals. And especially in the area of discipline, you need to have devotions. Make that a priority. I cannot tell you what a difference it makes. For me, the time to have devotions is early in the morning. I see it as kind of like you need to tune the violin before the concert, not after the concert. So other people have their devotions at other times. I'm not, I'm not going to bash any other time of day to spend time with God. But for me, I know if I don't get it done in the morning, it's very difficult for me to get it done early on, later on in the day. So I try to do it before I get out of my bed in the morning. Now, if you aren't getting enough sleep at night, you may need to get out of your bed <laughs> and go sit at your desk or go for a walk with your, your devotional book or praying out loud or something, whatever it is. But make sure you have a consistent devotional time in which you're connecting with God. Discipline is so important. The Ministry of Healing, page 176, says, The tempted one needs to understand the true force of the will. This is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision, of choice. Everything depends on the right action of the will. Desires for goodness and purity are right so far as they go, but if we stop here, they avail nothing. Many will go down to ruin while hoping and desiring to overcome their evil propensities. You know, we all hope and desire to, don't we? They do not yield the will to God. They do not choose to serve Him. God wants us to choose to serve Him. Our promises to Him, as I'm sure all of you have experienced, and I know I have, are like ropes of sand if we don't give Him our will. Number four, prayer and communion with God. All the previous ingredients are powerless without this one. Think of it. At best, if you're living disciplined and temperate and you're doing all these things right, but you don't have communion and connection with God, what have you accomplished? At best, you have a paltry few years on this earth that you might be healthier and a little bit happier. But what about eternity? We must have communion with God. Loving Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength can only happen through communication and quality time. So eternity is what matters. And the reason we must escape from the grip of escapism is because of eternity. Because eternal matters are at stake. These minutes that inch by while we're doing other things instead of coming to God with our problems and clinging to Him in the midst of everything, these minutes are the things that could set us free, could draw us into close communion with God so that the, the devil would lose his grip on us. The Ministry of Healing also says, God has given us the power of choice. It is ours to exercise. We cannot change our hearts. We cannot control our thoughts, our impulses, our affections. Have you all experienced that too? I know I have. We cannot make ourselves pure, fit for God's service, but we can choose to serve God. We can give Him our will. Then He will work in us to will and to do according to His good pleasure. Thus, our whole nature will be brought under the control of Christ. And just 
finally here, number five, sharpen your sword of the Spirit. There is nothing else that will empower you to have victory over the devil like using the Word of God as your weapon. If you were going into war, but you had no sword, just yourself, and you're fighting against a virtually invincible foe, what would you do? Would you just say, well, let's have at it. I know this guy's got everything, and I don't know what I'm doing. Or would you try your best to find a sword, find a gun, find something that you can use to fight this guy? God has given us a sword of the Spirit. If we try to go into the battle without it, it's our own fault that we fail every time. Luke 21, verses 34 through 36. Turn in your Bibles there if you have one, or I'm going to read it here from the screen. It says, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Now let's look at that verse a little more closely. The way that the sword of the Spirit empowers us to have victory is not just by reading it. See, the Bible is not designed to be read. It's designed to be studied. If you just read it, especially when your mind is paralyzed by movies and music and all the other things that the world throws at us, when you just try to read the Bible, you're going to be bored and it's going to seem irrelevant to your life. And you may read, you may spend a whole hour reading, man, I made it through eight chapters, but it's not going to have an influence to transform your life because the Bible is meant to be studied. It's meant to be drunk in, meditated on, and allow it to really sink into your life. So let's look at this verse. Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing. Can you think of any areas in our lives that tend to fall in the category of carousing? Maybe goofing off, going hanging out with our friends, going to parties. It may not seem like it's evil, but what is it replacing? Drunkenness. Drunkenness is straight up escapism. And whether I'm being drunk with wine, or with movies, or with music, or with television, or with novels, the effect is the same. It numbs me to listening to the voice of the Spirit of God calling to my heart. And cares of this life. You know, there's nobody who struggles with anxiety like the person who cannot cling to God. When I trust in the Lord with all my heart and lean not on my own understanding, I find that He actually has the strength to carry me through everything. He says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. You realize that is one of the most powerful promises in the Word of God? How many people here struggle with anxiety? Maybe I shouldn't even ask for raising your hand, but you know, you're thinking, well, what about this grade? What's going to happen in that relationship? I'm wondering about my family. Is so-and-so okay? You know, anxiety, it clings to us all the time because... We don't trust God to be strong enough to take care of things. Because I can't trust God to take care of it, I think I've got to take care of it. So I try to be God. I try to be in control. I develop my anxiety when I realize I cannot be in control because I don't even have the, I don't even have the control over the person who's driving down the road on the other side toward me. What if they veer across the line and hit me and kill me? You do not have control over so many things in your life. What we have is the illusion of control. 
people in, you know, say the Philippines or Africa or many of these countries where they don't have much control over anything often struggle with much less anxiety than we Westerners do. Why? Because they know full well they don't have control over much of anything in their lives. If it's hot outside, it's hot in their house. If it's cold outside, it's cold in their house. And if it's raining outside, it might well be wet in their house. <laughs> but they don't have the illusion that they can make things happen the way that we do. I think, I want to go visit my friend three hours away. Well, so I get in the car and I drive and visit my friend three hours away, right? Because I have control over these circumstances. If I feel, ah, I'm a little cold in my house, I go and turn up the heat. We live in an illusion of control. And then when we realize that we aren't actually in control, it blows our minds apart and we end up with severe anxiety issues. But the Bible has given a simple solution to that. Be anxious for nothing. And then he tells us how to do that. In everything by prayer, that's talking to God about everything, and supplication, that's asking him for the things that we need. With thanksgiving, praising him for the things he's already done will remind us of the fact that he actually has this under control, doesn't he? With, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the promise is, the peace of God will be with both your heart and your mind. Isn't that powerful? Your heart and mind, the way you think, the way you feel, the way you live will be transformed and you will no longer be in the grip of anxiety if you can cast all your cares upon him. So the cares of this life have power upon us when we refuse to follow biblical process of handing those things to the Lord. The cares of this life also will drive us to escapism if we don't hand them to the Lord, right? When I've got this backpack on my back and I'm just overwhelmed and I don't know what to do but I can't give it to the Lord, I'm going to look for something that I can just rest it on for a few minutes. There, I feel better. But that becomes my escape instead of giving myself to the Lord and finding true deliverance from my burden. What we really don't want is the last part there. Take heed lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life. You notice it's weighed down. You're not, your, your life is not, your heart is not brought to rejoicing by carousing and drunkenness and cares of this life. It does the opposite. And that day come on you unexpectedly. Isn't that what the devil wants? He wants the Lord's coming to be a thief in the night. We're like, well, I thought he was coming someday, but I still thought I had a few years that I could have a great time, you know, kicking back, dating, doing the Saturday night thing, you know. Adventists love to feel that, wow, I can just take a break for a while. And we don't think it's damaging because we're not doing drugs, we're not drinking, we're not smoking, we're just doing healthy escapes, right? For it will come that day as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. We don't want to be in that category, do we? Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. The real way that we will overcome is by building a relationship with that Son of Man. Knowing Him, loving Him, will be the thing that helps us to escape from the urge to escape to everything else. Here's another great promise that will transform your approach to whatever it is, whatever chains tend to bind you. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 13 and 14 says, No temptation has overtaken you, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, 
but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. You know, I, I think of it sometimes as if I'm clinging to the hand of God. I'm holding on to him with all of my strength, all of my grip, going, Lord, I will not let you go except you bless me. It may take every ounce of my energy to hang on to him. But you know what the great thing is about holding on to the hand of Jesus? When I have no more strength to hand, hold on to his hand, he'll hold on to mine. The reason he makes me exert so much effort in my gripping his hand is because it strengthens me. It's not because he needs me to put in all my energy that persuades him. He's like, oh, okay, 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 I'll hold on the rest of the way. He longs to connect with me, but he knows how weak I am. And unless I pursue him, unless I agonize in prayer with him, I will fall back into the world. Somehow, my own agonizing with him is what transforms me into his image. Yes? It's like a chick coming out of the egg. If you open the egg for the chick, it will die. But if it's mm-hmm. out, it's strong enough to live. Yes, that's an excellent illustration. When a baby bird is coming out of the egg, if you rescue it by saying, oh, you poor thing, pull it out and enable it to get out of its egg or the caterpillar out of the cocoon, the butterfly coming out of the cocoon, it's the very struggle that gives them the strength to be able to live outside of the egg. And if we deliver them from the struggle, we cause them to die ourselves. God knows we need the struggle. It's part of the victory. Another verse that's so powerful is watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Matthew 26, 41. God knows your weakness. He knows my weakness. He loves us with an everlasting, unchangeable love. And he pours it on us every moment. The treasure house of heaven is waiting to be poured out upon us. And all God is waiting for, he's saying, please, just open your heart. Turn your face toward me. Ask me. And persevere in asking me, not because you persuade me to give to you, but because until you persevere in asking me, you won't really even value the gift that I give to you. God knows that we need him, and he longs to set us free. I want to close with this final warning from Steps to Christ, page 32. What we do not overcome will overcome us and work out our destruction. I know many of us may have things that we're struggling with, and even in preparing this presentation, I kept thinking, Lord, are there things that I'm escaping to instead of to you? And I can see weaknesses, weak areas in my wall against temptation where when I start drifting, I'm like, you know, this is the first thing I tend to go to. So I've been convicted and just prayed, Lord, show me when I'm starting to slide. You know, there's nothing evil about social networking. It can be a powerful way to share the gospel, one of the most effective ways that's out there. But it has to be utilized for God's glory, not for my escape from my need for God. And it's the same with all of these things. Yes? Yeah, an interesting fact, um, when it talks about the sword of the spirit, it's not talking about a big coning the barbarian sword where you're standing apart from your opponent. It's more like a dagger where you're hand-to-hand combat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that we, we are in a battle to the death with a devil who personally wants to destroy us. But the great thing is we have a Christ who personally wants to deliver us. 
and he does it through deep and personal relationship with us. That's what he's calling every one of us to. It's not about can I fight away these horrible urges to do things that I know are just a waste of time or worse, but it's about can I connect with a God who loves me with an everlasting love? And the answer is always, always yes. I think it would be good for us now to just take a moment in prayer because after we leave here, the devil may try his best to distract us into something else, you know, whatever we're going to do Saturday night and lose our connection with him and our conviction. So let's take a moment to just pray right now silently about if there's anything that each one of us has been convicted needs to change in the way that we manage our life and whether we escape to things. And then I will close with a prayer at the end. So just about a minute that you can pray silently yourself. Father in heaven, I pray that each one of us will be convicted in our own minds by your Holy Spirit if there are things that you want to deliver us from. Little escapes that we thought maybe weren't that bad, but that we realize are leading us to turn to something else, to lean on something else instead of leaning on you. Lord, we pray that you will deliver us from the powers of darkness, that you will help us to be transformed into your image, and that nothing, nothing will be more attractive to us than knowing you and loving you. And I pray there will be decisions made because of listening to this message from your word that will help each one of us to, to be in the kingdom, to know your love, and to persevere in seeking relationship with you at all costs. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.